Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Church, it's wonderful to hear you sing of Christ's love and to sing like Christ's love at the cross is in fact the greatest love that you've ever known and the greatest, the greatest thing in your whole life. It is wonderful to hear you sing with that kind of joy to our Savior who has loved us. It was good to hear that update from Arthur and Rebecca. It's uh, good to tackle another question today. The question this morning from the scripture is, what is love? The question we plan on tackling next week and the week after that is kind of the related question of, uh, what do I do when I don't feel like doing anything good or I don't feel like doing anything for God? Or the related question is, what do I do when I feel like I'm disappointed with God or mad with God and how to deal with all of that? It's great that at least for 24 hours, we're a church with a bouncy house, the biggest one they had. I can't wait to get in there. I've got a job to do first, but after this, I'm there. And uh, the first scripture we'll read is Psalm 100, our pulpit prayer. We always, we're almost always try to pray before we open the word of God. My pulpit prayer this morning is from Psalm 80, because today's the 20th. Uh, This morning, I read Psalm 20, Psalm 50, Psalm 80, Psalm 110, Psalm 140. Actually, it was a little bit of a white lie. I didn't read them because the coffee hadn't kicked in yet, and I was so groggy, I just let my phone say them (laughs) to me this morning. (laughs) But I was struck by the powerful prayer. Uh, Anytime you don't know how to pray, man, just pick up a prayer from the Psalms. So let's bow together and pray this prayer from Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth, O God. Restore us, O God. Cause your face to shine upon us, O God, and we shall be saved. Let your hand now be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us, O Lord, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord. Cause your face to shine upon us, O Lord, and we shall be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Psalm 100 says, Make... A joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Church, I would direct your attention to verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves or that we are his. The truth of scripture is that God made us and God leads and guides and governs and loves us. And our lives are what God says they are. And right and wrong are what God says that they are because he's God and he has made us and he's revealed his truth to us. From Psalm 100, I would turn ahead to Romans 
chapter 12, the end of Romans 11 and the very beginning of Romans 12. God's word says here in Romans 11, verse 33, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him, through him, to him, all things. To him be glory forever, amen. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not, do not, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And church, I would direct your attention to the inescapable fact that there is something good and acceptable and perfect and that thing is revealed by God. The way to miss it is to be conformed to what the world says is good and love and perfect. The way to receive it is to be transformed by God. Our mission is to make and train disciples who make and train disciples. But one of the things we don't talk about enough is that this world makes and trains disciples who make and train disciples. And this is really from my heart what motivated me to this little series on answering key questions about how we get confused by the world is that the world makes disciples and changes our thinking and changes our way of going all the time from commercial marketing to entertainment to education to public discourse, the way people talk and the unspoken assumptions that are present in the way people reason and talk and emote is all showing how we get conformed to the world. So the question this morning is, what is love? What does the world say love is? And what has God said love is? I'm addressing this question, or we need to address this question, because there's a common mistake that far too many of us Christian people, we Christian people, make this mistake far too frequently. And that is we mix up the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment and we miss what both of them mean by love. When they asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law, Matthew 22, Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The Ten Commandments were written on two tablets of stone. We call it the first table of the law and the second table of the law. And from Jewish understanding, I think also from a proper Christian understanding, the first table of the law is how we love God. We honor him and we have no idols, concluding with that fourth commandment that we set aside a day as holy unto him. That's the first table that we love God. And then the second table... Joined to that, beginning with the fifth commandment, is how we love our neighbor, our parents, we don't steal, and all the rest of it. Jesus clearly says that articulately, or he, I'm sorry, he uses the article. He doesn't just say a great, he says this is the great and first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. So the fundamental command is to love God. That's the root command 
out of which all fruit of social interactions grow. So I can't, uh, I can't see what it means to love my neighbor without the light of God's love in my life. That's the root command. I would go so far as to say we can't even rightly define who our neighbor is without God revealing what people are and what neighbors are. And we certainly can't understand how to love without God revealing what love is. The question today is, arises because of a worldly corruption of what love is. And we've been warped and conform to the worldly definition of love and we miss what God says love actually is. There's a growing tendency, even among, I would say, maybe well-meaning Christians today to redefine and misapply the second commandment and to say, when Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, what Jesus actually meant was do what will make your neighbor feel comfortable and happy. Do what your neighbor would say would make you a nice, friendly person. Make sure your neighbor feels loved by you. As important as our neighbor's perceptions are, there's actually a deadly difference between obeying Jesus and loving my neighbor or calibrating everything that I do so that my neighbor's feelings and definitions of love are met. Those are two different things. Am I honoring Jesus as I love my neighbor? Or is the way that I'm supposedly honoring my neighbor making me cut corners and actually dishonor Jesus? I think the worldly corruption of love is that love your neighbor means agree with your neighbor. I think the worldly corruption of love is that we... we another way of saying the question this morning, what is love, is to ask this question. Is Christ-likeness, niceness, according to an empty definition of nice that the world has come up with recently? Is Christ-likeness, niceness? Another way of getting at the question of what is love is to challenge ourselves to say, have we redefined love as uh, a feeling? Have we decoupled love from truth? Have we become a people who are all in for tolerance and totally mute on truth-telling? Have we elevated the subjective feelings of our neighbor? They're not unimportant, but the subjective feelings of our neighbor aren't God. Have we elevated the subjective feelings of our neighbor and devalued faithfulness to God? Have we become so timid that we take the perceived response of another person and let that dictate what I do and don't do or say? What should dictate what I do or don't do or say is my love for God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the world's definition of love? What's God's definition of love? The discipleship of the world says love is affirming the other person, agreeing the other person. And this is because the question we talked about last week, I know you don't remember the sermons from week to week, neither do I, but the question we talked about last week was what is truth? And one of the things that we emphasized was the, the, the world has mixed up uh, feeling something with knowing something and, and uh, confused about truth. 
People not only feel free to determine what's true for themselves, but we also assume that everybody just sort of constructs reality based on their feelings. And I, I want to challenge us because I think even well-meaning Christians don't realize how dangerous this is. In our hypersubjective age, if we cash in Jesus' definition of loving God and loving neighbor to a worldly definition of loving neighbor, then if, if somebody's subjective feelings are the standard, then there is no standard. Because in a dark and darkening and depraved world, there is no end to what a darkened heart might demand from me in order to make them feel happy and loved. And I can't be led by that. Love your neighbor can't mean only do what your neighbor wants you to do immediately because that would make your neighbor actually into God. And we saw from Psalm 100, it is God who made us, not we ourselves. It is God who determines what's right and wrong. If we went too far on this, it'd really be the end of evangelism. That's our concern. The concern about getting love right is not just that we don't want to be conformed to the world as important as not being discipled by the world is. But the big point behind it is that when God tells us to love, our God who tells us to love is love. And he has filled our lives with his love. You know, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Listen to this. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. It's not that Jesus didn't love, and it's not that Jesus isn't light. It's that the world refuses to receive that as love because they've substituted darkness for light. He says in John 3, verse 20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest, the work should be, lest their work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is love. And we our minds go back to these wonderful truths we just learned from 1 John in ABF about what love really is. 1 John 3, verse 23. 1 John 3, verse 23 says this, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. John there in a tender way makes sure that Christians understand that love has an objective content based on the person and work of Jesus Christ, trusting him, believing in him and being loyal to him above all else. First John 4 Beginning in verse 7, 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest among us, 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Church, I would just point out again and afresh that there is no comprehension of love without a comprehension of what propitiation means and what sin is and how sin can be taken away. This is God's demonstration of his love for us. And I emphasize this because uh, it's never right to be entirely motivated by our fears, but it's right to be realistic about seeing the way things are trending. And as I see the way things are trending, if the church, if the church buys into the world's redefinition of love, then what would happen would be the world would lose its only shot at ever seeing what love actually is. Put it like this. Everybody in the world is selling water, but they're calling it wine. Everybody in the world is selling water, but they're calling it wine. The church of Jesus Christ, 1 John 3, John 4, is the only place where the actual wine really is. We have love. We have love. Not because we love God, but he first loved us in propitiation for our sins. We actually have wine. And if we put that away and get out water, then nobody in the world will get the true wine of the gospel. This is why this is so important. Woe to the world if the church substitutes the worldly, watered-down, bent redefinition of love for the actual rich wine of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is why this matters. So to talk together with our Bibles open about what love is and what love isn't. Love is, we could say it like this, couldn't we? Love is a commitment to the good of the one I love, regardless of what it costs me. Love is a commitment to the good of the one I love, regardless of what it costs me. I see that in John 3, 16. I see that in 1 John 4, 10. And this is love. Love is a sacrificial commitment to the good of the one I love. Real, true, that they're real and true and lasting good. What love isn't is love is not a perpetual agreement, perpetual affirmation no matter what. Love is always according to the truth. Love refuses to torpedo the truth in order to make somebody feel loved. Look at how uh, love is described in, uh, go to Romans 12. Love is described in Romans 12, Romans 13, even 1 Corinthians 13. If you, if you pushed me, I, I would reject that, that like 1 Corinthians 13 is a definition of love. The scripture gives a lot more descriptions of things than sort of Western Webster definitions. 
but love is intriguingly and enticingly and I think attractively and compellingly described in Romans 12, Romans 13, and, and, and 1 Corinthians 13. Romans 12, pick it up in verse nine. Let love be genuine. That's interesting. Doesn't that entail that there is a so-called love that isn't genuine? He says, church, born again believers, let love be genuine. Well, what is genuine love? Genuine love abhors what is evil and holds fast to what is good. Do you mean that God's description of love includes abhorring some things? Yes. This, this is in itself, like the, 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 in, a, in a one little snapshot, the difference between God's definition of love and the world's definition of love. Genuine love abhors what is evil, doesn't affirm it, doesn't wink at it, doesn't joke about it. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The word of God is so marvelously balanced. And all of us, present speaker included, are so twistedly imbalanced. I'll never get things right on my own heart and my own mind, only when I'm in the word of God. So you see, he comes back around here and he says, your neighbor's perception, it does matter. As far as it's possible, be at peace with your neighbor. Don't do evil. When your neighbor does evil to you, don't do evil to them and give thought to what is honorable in society and in culture. But don't be dictated to by it. Don't be stifled by it. Don't bow down to it in discipleship. You see, he says there in verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. So clear about what love really is. His culminating verse there in verse 21 is do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 13, verse eight, another marvelous description of love. Here, Paul says the whole law is summarized in love your neighbor. The whole second tablet of the law is summarized in love your neighbor. See it in Romans 13, verse eight. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Look how he goes on. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night's far gone, church. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. There is an inseparable entwining of love 
with God's moral commandments about speech, about sexual conduct, about drunkenness, about jealousy, all of it. There is an inseparable intertwining of love with God's moral commandments for our attitudes and actions and behaviors. Love is a commitment to the good of the one I love regardless of the cost to me. And God here describes for us what love is. And I trust you're familiar with that wonderful text in 1 Corinthians 13, that love is patient and love is kind. And it says there, doesn't it, that love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. So love can't be agreeing and getting along all the time. Love can't be a saccharine niceness. Love is always according to the truth because it is God who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his. And he shows us what love is. He shows us what right and wrong are. So with this definition, let's tackle a practical objection. What if my neighbor does feel like I hate him or her? What if I try to be loving and I'm called a hater? This is, this kind of a little bit takes us back to the first question that we answered when we started this series. The first question was something like, how has the world gotten so crazy? Like, what is the climate that we're living in? Well, I don't claim to understand fully the climate that we're in, but it seems to me that it might be the case, it might be the case that how matter, no matter how gently and uh, hospitably you open up about the Bible's truth claims about sexual reality, that no matter how gently and lovingly and warmly you share those things, if you share those things, you will be called a hater, which is to say that you will be seen as unloving by your neighbor, which will be say that they will say this or that about you. So what do we do? What do we do? I think it might be the case that in our culture, somebody put it like this. This world is so in love with lies that to speak the truth in love feels like hatred. I wonder if that's the case. This world is so in love with lies that to speak the truth in love feels like hatred. Now, what do I do if I'm called hateful by people that I'm trying to love? Well, do a couple of things. First, assess yourself and make sure that you're not a jerk. It is very possible that you raised your tone, that you got in their space, that you were more concerned about being right than actually having a dialogue with them. Make sure you're not a jerk. Seriously. Go back to 1 Corinthians 13. Go back to Galatians 5 and see what it, what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. What do I do if it seems like I, I, I've tried to be hospitable, I've tried to be generous, I've tried to be patient, but I, I'm called a hater? Well, the first thing, church, is like I said, make sure you're not a jerk. The second thing is uh, never mock someone, never insult someone, never by your words make someone feel like they are lesser than you. I don't care what their chosen sin is. You deserve hell. 
100% equally as they do. So don't make them feel like they're less than you. Don't mock anybody. Don't insult anybody. Don't belittle anybody. Don't make anybody feel that they're less than you as far as you're able, as far as you're able and peaceful and truthful. Do all that you can not to be a hater, not to be mean, not to be cruel. But one of the things I am saying is uh, you don't have to do everything possible that you would never be called those things because you might get called those things. In other words, these are two different motivations. If my motivation is I want to honor God and I really want to love my neighbor the way God has called me to, that's a good motivation. If my motivation is I I, I, I want to make sure that nobody ever disagrees with me and I'm never called a hater, that's a bad motivation. You should be motivated not to be a hater and not to be a jerk. You should be hospitable and generous and you should still be kind to people even if they disagree with you. That's exactly what Romans says. Another objection. What about, doesn't it say, doesn't it say somewhere in the Bible that we should be well thought of by outsiders? Doesn't it say to the church you should be well thought of by outsiders? Yes, it does. In fact, that's a qualification for elders and deacons, that that the elder and the deacon must be well, must have a good reputation with those outside the church. So this is something that we think about and something that we take into consideration. But just hold up and remember that the elder who wrote that qualification in 1 Timothy 3 was in jail for being a hater. That's actually what happened. Like a huge mob of people said, this guy's dangerous, this guy's hateful. And the government decided that he was a threat to the well-being of society and put him in a prison. So should we be concerned with the reputation uh, with how the world sees us? Yes, yes, that's a consideration. But the world's view of us isn't God. God is God. And we have to honor God first and last and in between. I believe that when the apostle Paul was called a hater and thrown in jail as a dangerous person, he was showing the most Christ-like love that he could have shown when he was called those things. Lord willing, our next exposition will be from 1 Peter and in 1 Peter 2 and in 1 Peter 4, he's, he's, he, t- he talks in very detailed language about this. He says, uh, he, he says in uh, 1 Peter 2, I'll just read it to you because it's helpful to understand the difference between being beholden to the world's view of us and, and just being courageous and letting the chips fall where they may. He says in 1 Peter 2 verse 12, He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he's anticipating they're gonna call you evil. And what he's saying is, don't be evil. Be good according to God's definition. Even if the world with their bent conform definition of evil says that you're evil. You see that he he, he has a paragraph about that again in 1 Peter 4. How'd we get here? What is, the, what is the deal with what's going on all around us? I, I think, I didn't look at the bulletin, but is there a recommended book in there by Carl Truman? Yeah. Um, I, uh, 
I recommend that book just because it, it, it describes all, the, all these kinds of things. And Truman uh, has the phrase in there, emotivism, emotivism. And that's, that's how we got where we are. Because everything that everyone says about everything is an expression of emotion. All moral judgments, all moral judgments are personal expressions of revulsion or attraction. That's emotivism. All personal, all judgments, all spoken judgments are personal expressions of preference. And so you see how that evacuates moral categories of any objective content and it evacuates moral categories of any possibility of objective content. And I think that accurately describes our public square. I don't really know when the last time is that I saw an argument online. And I'm, I'm using the Aristotelian logical definition of argument. I've seen plenty of arguments online, but they're just expressions of emotional preference. That's all they are. That's all they are. This is, Truman gets in that book about, into the issue of the ideas behind the ideas, and it's helpful. He, ha, he talks about gender reassignment surgery, and he makes a very incisive point that 40 years ago, 30 years ago, I don't know, 50 years ago, the, the sentence, uh, uh, I am a woman trapped in a man's body that sentence spoken to a doctor would have been treated as a psychiatric problem. That there's something wrong with your feelings. There's something wrong with your thinking. There's something wrong with your desiring. And that we, we would, there was an expectation, back to Psalm 100, it is God who made us. There's like this creational reality. There's this expectation that the body is, is objective reality and now maybe you need some kind of therapy or I don't know what, but to, 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 you need compassion and care and love, but so that your thinking and your desires can be in line with embodied reality according to God's creational design. That doctor would love you by, by, by helping you or sending you to someone who could help you think differently and feel differently. Today, a doctor is likely or possibly legally mandated to respond to, I am a woman trapped in a man's body by saying, you don't have to change your inner feelings, but I will literally change your body and carve it into what you feel like it ought to be. We did not get there by following the science. This, this, is, not a, this is not a scientific distinction. This is a creational reality distinction. Doctors today would, it's just completely different. And I think it does go back to the definition of what is love. I don't, I don't in any way want anyone to be unloving to someone who is struggling with gender dysphoria. But I, I genuinely want to love them. And this is what we're getting back to. What is love? Well, we've said a lot about love, but the only thing that we have to end by saying over and over and over again is that God is love and God made us to know his love and God so loved us that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. 
Sin has cracked and distorted our loves. And this is the good news of the gospel. God did not wait for us to love him. He loved us first. He loved us first. And Jesus says, come to me. I wonder if he was speaking in today's vernacular. I wonder if Jesus would have said, come to me. It's exhausting to live your life based on how you feel. I wonder if Jesus would say it's ruinous to expect everyone around you to affirm everything you think and and feel all the time. I wonder if Jesus would say, I don't want that for you. Come to me and let me show you who you are and how much I love you. This is Jesus. This is Christ Jesus. And Christ says, come to me. Give up trying to figure out who you are without me. Jesus says, I loved you and died for you when you were totally confused about love. You know how deeply I believe that? (laughs) I actually believe that Jesus would still love me even if I was a bad pastor. I believe that. I believe that. Because he's Jesus. This is how he loves us. It's only in Christ that we understand who we are, that we understand what love is, and then that we have the broken-hearted, compassionate boldness to love our neighbor as ourself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how you have loved us. Oh, how you've loved us. We rest in your love. Lord Jesus, as we rest in your love, we long for the world around us to understand that love. Make us instruments of peacemaking. Lord Jesus, in your sovereign wrath, rebuke those members of this congregation who have been hateful, who have mocked others, who have dishonored the image of God in in insulting sinners. And Lord Jesus, in your sovereign mercy, conform all of us to be more and more and more like you. The friend of sinners who rebuked sinners. The friend of sinners who called all men and women everywhere to repent. Keep us close to your heart. Let us be convinced of what love is and let us be compassionate and bold to share that love far and near. Jesus, all for your sake. Amen. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.